in the Cub Scout program. I think a lot of you know what Cub Scouts are. They're the, the younger level beneath the Boy Scouts. And you have to go out and do all these various outdoor activities and demonstrate skills and tie knots, things like that. And uh, one of the activities that our troop had to do was to go fishing. And we were instructed on the basics of fishing. And so we went to a lake. This is in Southern California where I grew up. And they, you know, they gave us the bait and we had our equipment, et cetera. And we went off to go fish. Well, time went on and I could not catch any fish. There were no fish biting. But I noticed that my friends who were fishing there in the same exact lake as myself, they were quite successful. And many of them were catching numerous fish. And I have to admit, I was feeling a little worried, a little foolish, a little incompetent in my, my fishing skills. And I didn't know what to do. So to my shame, I just decided to walk around and think about it. So I walked along the, the shore of the, the lake there, meditating on what I could do, because I still remember the sun was about, about to go down. And uh, lo and behold, I saw a dead fish laying on the edge of the lake that had washed up and it looked kind of gross. But as I said, to my shame, I put my hook in that dead fish and I walked back proudly carrying this dead fish as if I had caught it. Uh, later on that evening, others wanted to cook their, their fish and eat it. And uh, I had enough sense to throw my fish away and who knows what viruses or bacteria that it had. Uh, but I, I realized that I was a fake fisherman. I, I really didn't know what I was doing, and I was frankly embarrassed and ashamed. Jesus calls us all to be fishers of men. One of my go-to definitions of discipleship is Jesus' line where he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I suspect a lot of us maybe feel a little bit like Peter, where we fished all night and have caught nothing. We've been laboring hard and it doesn't seem like there's a fish that are biting. And what we need to do is we need to go to Jesus, who, who will give us the instruction to go out at the right time in the right way and to throw our net in the right place. And there is a, an immense harvest of fish to be gained if indeed we can follow Jesus in that way. One of the, the things that I'm going to try to elaborate on, as you can tell from my title, Discipleship is the Foundation of Church Planning, is, is a conviction that has been deeply solidified in my mind in the last four to five years, which is first asking the question, are we actually making disciples in our own churches? So let's, let's forget about going out and starting new churches, but how are we doing internally in our own settings? So you can do this as a thought experiment. A- ask in your mind questions like this. Picture all the people in your congregation sitting there. And ask the question, how many of them are exercising their gifts, their God-given gifts? How many of them are overcoming sin? How many of them are discipling others? How many of them are successful in evangelism? How many of them are prayer warriors who are leading out? How many are adding passion and zeal to the group? How many are bold and daring for the kingdom? If you do that exercise in your mind... And answer honestly, I think for, for many of us, we would say that we're not very excited about where we're at. I was just at a, a Bible school in Ohio 
couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, something like that. And uh, I, there were about 31 students in the, in the Bible school. And I asked students to raise hands if anybody had one person who came in from the outside into their church. One, not a Mennonite moving from you know, Pilgrim to Nationwide or something like that, but a true outsider coming in. And uh, out of the 31 students, not one student raised their hand. They said in all their churches, there wasn't one person who had come in on the outs- from the outside, which says a lot. I was, I was sad to, to, to see that lack. Indeed, what Dallas Willard has so eloquently said, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission that we have forgotten that indeed this is our great task, but yet the vast majority of churches are not focusing on this. You can, you can actually do this exercise again in your mind here. There, there's roughly four or five types of churches out there. So there's one type which is more educational in nature. These churches are all about teaching doctrine, about uh, imparting Good knowledge, very good knowledge. And you will see used in these settings a classroom methodology. So educational is the first one. Others are social. There's a lot of groups where there are places to connect to, to friends, to family. Other churches are more defensive. They're more about avoiding sin and holding ground against the world. And then other churches are more about community service, where they're working in soup kitchens or picking up trash, cleaning up neighborhoods, that sort of thing. Well, those are all great things, and I think we would all agree. Doctrine is great. Being social is great. Being defensive is great. Uh, Community service is great. Those are all good things. But in the end, you can only really focus on one thing. There's only one thing that we can ultimately decide ourselves, uh, decide on success or not. Jim Collins, some of you know him. He's a very popular writer in the business world. He says, if you have more than two or three priorities, you don't have any priorities. Um, and a lot of us would attest to that in our own experience. So what do, we, what do we say? What is our measure for success, even in our own groups? How do we think about that? For some people, the Great Commission has been mutated to something like make converts and baptize them into your denomination. I think for a lot of people, when they hear the Great Commission, they almost hear something like that. They don't hear what Jesus is actually saying, which is to make disciples and baptize them into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As was mentioned in the description on the flyer there, there's not a single command in the New Testament to plant churches, not one. You won't find that anywhere. But there are many places in the New Testament where it says to make disciples. The Great Commission is obviously the most famous. The thesis that I will make this evening is that disciple-making is the necessary condition for church planning, and it begins where we are in our current settings. And if you have that, you have basically nothing. Now, we have been, uh, if followers of the way, the church that I'm a part of, we started about five years years ago, we started with uh, one congregation. We've grown now to four. And um, we have three in the U.S., one in Uganda and Africa. Uh, we're, we're very excited. We're, we're, I really feel that God is moving there. But we have made many, many mistakes along the way. And I feel like sometimes my body is covered in scar tissue from mistakes that we've made. And in medicine, there's a very interesting practice that you do to learn from your mistakes. The 
the practice is called uh, M&M rounds. So M&M rounds stands for morbidity and mortality rounds. So if there's ever a, a major mishap in the hospital, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to present in front of all the fellow doctors and you say, this is the case that happened and this is went wrong. Here was the error. Maybe there were two or three errors. And then you have this big discussion and then they say, oh, you know what? We need to learn from this mistake. Maybe we're going to change our policy or we're going to have the computer system not allow this high of a dose or something like that. The, the mentality is always to be improving because the stakes are high, right? It makes sense. Now, I would love for us to do M&M rounds, morbidity and mortality rounds, as we have lots of, um, presumably, lots and lots of stories here of trying and failing and, and learning from those mistakes. We need to be reflective. I'll give you one such story that happened in our group. There was an individual who had moved from far away, a small family, a young family, had moved in from far away, very excited, said all the right things. And, uh, and one day somebody came to me and said, I've noticed some problem areas going on in this person's life. And I didn't want to say anything, but six months ago, I actually saw this person steal something from a store. I thought, what? Steal something from a store? How, how did this happen? And, and, and then I said, did you, did you deal with it? Did you talk through it? And it's like, well, I saw it, but then I didn't know what to do. I was confused. Did it really happen? And, um, and so I was very alarmed by this. I, I went and sat down with this, uh, this brother. He became very upset, very, very um, contentious at all this. And he ended up leaving in quite a huff. I went back and did, in my mind, M&M rounds, and I thought, what happened in this situation? What, what went wrong? Why, why did this situation even occur? A lot of you have had difficult church situations in the last couple of years. I'm sure all of you, if we raise hands, you don't have to do that. But you can think of different situations in your church where there's been some friction, some problems of some nature. My guess, this is, this is what I would attest in my own experience, 90% of the problems come from a failure to proactively, intentionally disciple. Certainly in our experiences in, in Boston and beyond, not easily 90% of the problems we have have simply been issues where we have not systematically, proactively, forcefully been trying to disciple and, and work out people's issues long before they become these full-blown problems. In most settings, you know, I, I've been to hundreds of churches. I'm, a, I'm an MK, I'm a missionary kid, and so I spend a lot of my youth just going to hundreds and hundreds of churches, all kinds, charismatic and Presbyterian and Methodist and Baptist, you name it. And I will say that virtually all churches in America, they just expect you to figure it out. You, you come there, you show up on Sundays, and the hope is that you're just going to somehow become a mature Christian by sitting in these meetings. But there's very little true intentional structure that moves forward towards that. In contrast, I believe that the true New Testament biblical church should be a discipling machine. It should be a place where people come with all kinds of problems, all kinds of sin. And then within a matter of years, they are now mature, victorious, prayer warriors, successful evangelists, bold in their faith, zealous, that ought to be the journey of the vast majority of people in our congregations. And I want to, if you have a Bible, turn with, with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're only going to look at one 
passage today formally. I'll allude to several others, but look with me at one passage. It's Ephesians 4. It's a familiar passage, but I want to bring out something here that is an observation that you may have missed before. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, it reads, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it says that there were these different offices given, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And their job is very clear. They are supposed to be doing what in verse 12? Equip the saints. Now, now here is what I want you to pay a special attention to. Who is actually doing the work of ministry? It's the saints. And it's these, these leaders who are equipping the saints, they're actually empowering the saints to do the ministry. It's not the leaders themselves that are doing the ministry. It's a very important observation. And, and yet, in, in many places, we will often say, I use this language too, like, who is in your ministry? And you'll say, oh, we have two ministers and three deacons and da-da-da-da, right? I mean, it's actually language that directly contradicts the Bible itself, where we ought to say, when you say who's in the ministry, well, we have about this many families, this many singles. We ought to, if we're really biblical, we ought to say it's the entire congregation there. There's actually a very good Greek scholar who has said that this word pastor is so muddled with all kinds of baggage and nonsense that he has proposed that we actually, when we read the word pastor, we actually put the word coach in instead. Now, obviously, coach doesn't have the, the same nobility. It sounds more like a sports term. But nonetheless, I think that carries the, the force of the, the term very nicely, that really the leaders are supposed to be the ones who are equipping and instructing the players who are the, the ordinary saints, and they're the ones who are actually doing the work. Hopefully, you actually see that. Now, instead, what do we see? We see more commonly a model where people believe that the ministry, however many bishops and deacons and whatnot, they're the ones who are doing the ministry, and the others are encouraging them. They are, are happy to be there. They're supportive, but they're not actually the ones doing the ministry. This is a tremendous distortion. This is one of the reasons why there is so little discipleship occurring, because people don't fundamentally in their heart of hearts believe that they're supposed to be on the front lines doing that. One of the things that I am very concerned about, so I was raised in Protestant evangelical settings, and, uh, and I know that world very well. I still am deeply involved in, in speaking and ministering to groups in those settings, and we, we often will, will criticize them because, in, in a loving way, hopefully, because it's often about this intellectual, pray the sinner's prayer, that type of thing. And there's not often the translation into the total life of obedience that a Christian should be showing. But I have a fear, a very deep fear, that especially in plain settings, there is a, actually a very similar phenomenon where I call it checklist Christianity, where checklist Christianity is basically a form of Christianity where you believe some things, 
And if you believe those things, you're, you're good. You're on, you're on the team. And here's what's, here's what's on most of the checklist. So if you believe all the orthodox things about Trinity and virgin birth and all that, and then if you had non-resistance and divorce and remarriage, you're pretty much like 95% there and all is well. Well, those are just at one level. For most of us, we're not going to be called to serve in war. Most of us will hopefully never even have to confront in our own marriages those types of issues. Are we actually dangerously close to what we see in Protestant evangelical settings? Now, when we, when we talk about discipleship, fundamentally discipleship should be about the heart. It should be about molding passionate, zealous, excited people who are actually not just defined by what they don't do, right? Non-resistance. I mean, even the term non-resistance. I don't fight in war. I don't kill people. I don't things like that. Divorce and remarriage. I don't get divorced. I don't remarry, right? Again, these are all great things, and I'm excited about those things. But how much better is it to think about discipleship in a positive sense, someone who's actually going out and successfully making disciples? And that is the hallmark just as much of being a Christian, Again, when, when we have these checklists that we can fall into, I fear that it simply becomes a passive exercise where you can just sort of sit there week after week and not be on the front lines doing ministry, engaged in that hard work that we're supposed to be doing. Now, the challenge is that, and this is, this is a very profound idea here, the challenge is that, is that just like in Protestant evangelical settings, you know, really most of the ministry there is to the head, right? It's... It's really trying to convince people of these doctrines. It's less to the whole person. It's less to the heart and to the hands. Well, in in a very similar way, when we just stop at this checklist Christianity, we have omitted very important commands of Scripture. Things like be fervent, Romans 12. Be zealous and repent, uh, Revelation 3. Uh, All of the, the zeal and the passion that Jesus had when he was overturning the tables in the temple, saying, uh, uh, my, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. How do we mark success? This is what I'm, I'm trying to drive at here. How do we mark success? Is it just simply a bunch of negatives, a bunch of passive beliefs, or do we, will we only be satisfied with people who are truly going out there, conquering, turning the world upside down, making disciples, etc.? Okay, so one of the things that I have been doing over the last year, and and maybe at some point I'd like to write this up or do a sermon series about this, but I've been asking the question, when we think about this kind of dramatic transformation, so I'm not talking about just small little things of of people being nice people, you know, someone who was already nice, now they're a little bit nicer, or somebody who was a nice person and now they, they believe in non-resistance. I'm talking about just places where you see this incredible transformation of life. I've been studying these models of organizations in the United States where these are have successfully been done for many, many years. And trying to ask the question, what can we learn as the church from these models? So I'm going to share with you throughout this session here some things that I've been learning from that. But the most famous example of an organization like this is Alcoholics Anonymous. So AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, has been going for decades, and it has a very good success rate. If you are a person who is a drunk, if you have struggled with alcohol, you will find a very good success if you success rate if you enroll in this program and step through it all. 
I've been especially intrigued by groups that take prisoners, people who have been in prison 10, 20, 30 years for drugs, violent crimes, etc., and can rehabilitate them to become normal citizens who are happy, honest, uh, good people who can raise families. And I've actually found two models that I have been studying. I'm actually visiting one of them um, later on this summer. And uh, I've already been, been meeting with people to try to understand how do they work? How do you, I mean, imagine this. Imagine somebody dropped one of these prisoners in your congregation who has done hard time for grand theft or being a drug dealer or something like that. And your expectation is to transform that person to be a law-abiding citizen who's hardworking, who's loving, who's going to raise a family. That's pretty hard, right? That's a, that's a tough task for most of us to, uh, to imagine doing. Well, I, I've generally been disappointed that the church has relegated all of those tasks to these outside secular organizations. Most of them don't even call themselves Christians. Right? It should be the case that people say, my life is broken, I'm a sin addict, I've got all kinds of problems. I'm going to go to the church because those people know life and they have the power of God in their midst. Lives are changed. If I go there and commit myself there, I'm going to be a whole new person, right? That, that ought to be our reputation. But we have failed at that. Like I said, we, we have not done a good job. And this, these are all churches. I'm not picking on any one denomination. This Protestant, plain, all are, are have this, the same problem here. So Jesus has a fascinating line in Luke 16 in the parable of the shrewd moneylender where he says that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light when he talks about money. He basically says the people in the world know better how to be strategic and, and thoughtful than people in, in, the, in the light, people of, of the light. And so I'm going to give you some, some thoughts on this as I share four basic points with you on this theme of discipleship and church planning. So number one, point number one is embrace that discipleship is the main vocation of your life. Embrace that discipleship is the main vocation of your life. So Mark Twain, the, the writer of the 1800s, he said that the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, if you haven't had the pleasure, I'm going to tell you your, your why right now. Every single person here, man, woman, child, your why is you were put here on this earth to make disciples for Jesus. Okay? So if you don't already know that, this should be the most, second most important day of your life, or maybe the first most important day of your life. Okay? So incredibly important to believe this in your heart of hearts. You were placed here on this earth to disciple other people. Now, I was talking to my wife about this when we were driving up. This especially includes stay-at-home mothers. You know, child-rearing is actually one form of discipleship. Discipleship is a big term, but child-rearing is, is one of the most important forms of discipleship, where you've got a little life, a little soul here, and you have the privilege of shaping this soul over 18 years, however many years, into hopefully a godly young man or young woman. So if you are a stay-at-home mother, Wow. This is your vocation. Uh, for, for people like myself who have jobs that aren't necessarily as, as soul-shaping as that, you have two vocations. Your, your, your secondary job is whatever pays the bills, and your main job is disciple-making. At home, in your church, in your communities, this is your job. Now, why? People are incredibly broken all around you, even in the pews. So 
I did this in, in this Bible school that I was just at, just to give you a flavor for where people are at. These are, these are good young people. So this was a, a Bible school in Ohio that I was at where, like I said, really good people there who were uh, devout, similar to all of you, a lot of people from beachy backgrounds and uh, nationwide pilgrim, all, all the same groups as many of us would know here. I had the, the men fill out an anonymous survey. There were 31 people there, but I had just the men fill out a survey, and I asked them the question, how many of you have looked at pornography in the last year? How many have looked at pornography in the last three months? 60% had looked in the last year, 43% in the last three months. And uh, I had them fill out cards about what their greatest struggles are, and the vast majority said this was a struggle, and no one is helping them with this. I mean, young people who are just sitting there and they're, they're cowering in shame because they don't have tools and, and mechanisms there. You know, one of, the, one of the things that is probably one of the worst things you can do to somebody in that situation is just say, oh, well, uh, you need to try a little harder or you need to just, uh, you know, just give it another world. The, the, the problem is, is that when you get that kind of advice, it just doesn't help at all because people need tools and encouragement. I remember when... When we were going off and uh, we actually moved to be part of a, an eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite church for four years. This was about ten years ago now. And we went there for one of the main reasons was to learn how to do childbearing. And so we would go to people and say, oh, how do you do this? And, and one answer that I used to get that used to drive me crazy was they would say, oh, just mind the Lord. Just mind the Lord. It's like... I didn't move here for four years just to hear somebody tell me, mind the Lord. Um, people want, they need tools and help and encouragement and strategy and ideas and someone to walk with them and all that. We have done in our own group, and I'll share more about this later, some very practical ideas on this. But we have found that even people who have been walking with the Lord for years or decades have deep, deep struggles that they've never worked through. I mean, just very deep, profound struggles that they are just, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you that your pews, your churches are filled with similar people. So if this is the case, if we have a lot of brokenness, a lot of needs in our own communities, doesn't that unmet need alone call forth the need for discipleship? I mean, it should be obvious. Well, one of the things that I was very intrigued at at one of these programs that rehabilitated prisoners was from the very first day you walked in, from the very first day that somebody walks in, they were put in a group of people ranging from typically three to as as high as ten, but usually on the smaller side. And one of the rules they had in this, it's actually the community that has the highest rehabilitation rate of any center in the country. The rule was you can't even ask the question, how are you? You can't say the word, how are you anymore? And I thought like, That's weird. Why can't you ask the question, how are you? You have to ask the question, how is your crew? Crew, K-C-R-E-W. So what they say is that we're going to turn a me problem into a we problem. And they call it 200% accountability. You're accountable for yourself and for your crew. And so these are people who, like I said, have years and years of horrific sin problems. And they're walking in day one to a center And day one, they are given responsibility over a small crew of people, and they have to know what's going on there. We are wired as human beings to be functioning in in ways where we we flourish when we are networked, connected to groups of people that we have responsibility for. 
If we're just isolated loners floating around, we do very poorly. One of the the, the next points I'm going to make is that number two is that loving relationships are the channel of discipleship. Loving relationships are the channel of discipleship. Now, I was I was thinking about this myself, but it's a good exercise for all of us to do is to think about who are the people in your life that have made the biggest impact in your life. You know, if you just mentally run through and, and picture their faces and picture who's actually impacted your life. Well, my suspicion is that for most of you, they will be people who deeply cared about you, people who deeply have been looking out for you and seeking your welfare and and trying to to engage with you. When I did this exercise, I thought of a couple people in the last 10, 20 years who time and time and time again, they initiated with me and they said, hey, Finney, can we get together? Let's get lunch. Let's do this. Let's let's spend some time praying together. In Romans chapter 1, I'm convinced that the whole book of Romans is actually a discipleship manual where Paul is trying to take a church that has this problem of Jews and Gentiles fighting with each other. And he's trying to illustrate for all of us how he shepherds this group of people over their problems. And he starts in, in verse 10 where he says, I long to see you face to face. There's no substitute for one-on-one or one-on-group face-to-face interactions. Again, think about this. There's an individual in our group back in Boston who I've noticed is this magnet. He is just an absolute magnet for people, particularly international students. And we have a a good number of people that we minister to who who are going through an ESL, English as a Second Language Program. And I think it's safe to say that he is the warmest, most loving person in our whole group. And not surprisingly, people just gravitate towards this person, and he's able to speak into their lives much more effectively than the rest of the group. Well, this ought to tell us something, and we ought to ask ourselves, how are we faring with respect to generating loving relationships that are the channel of discipleship? This is more for the mothers here, because I do believe that that this is, discipleship is, is, in its essence, pictured in motherhood. I was at a homeschool conference, I think two months ago, and I was in a little booth here with some of my children, and we were just looking at books there, and there was a little sign on the, on the wall, and it, it stuck with me. The, the sign said, no app can substitute for your lap. <laughs> no app can substitute for your lap. And I thought, that's great. This, this idea that no matter how good technology gets, your child needs you in their lap for that, that powerful connection time. That's where, that's where discipleship begins, in a sense. So how are you doing? How are you doing? If I were to ask you now, who are the people that you're discipling? Hopefully you have a list of people, and if you don't, I'd encourage you to make that list. How has your initiative been with those people for face-to-face time? Because it will give you a key to their heart. Okay, point number three, grow in the ministry of admonishment. Grow in the ministry of admonishment. I, I've been, I don't know, I, I think I coined this phrase, I'm not sure, but I've been using it a lot in, in our churches because I think it's one of the great weaknesses that we all have. So a lot of us, when from a young age, we were told by our mothers, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? How many of you have been told that? Well, that's actually not that biblical, um, 
it, it is maybe for little children, but once you hit adulthood, it's not. So I'm going to read you just a smattering of verses here from the Old and New Testament to try to convince you about how dominant a theme it is that your job, one of your jobs, is to make these loving relationships and then in the context of that to challenge, to admonish, to call out people for their, their struggles and their issues. All right, Leviticus 19.17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. It's an amazing verse. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. You know, this, he's trying to put a squash to like gossip and bad feelings there. He says, if you, you got to get rid of this hatred in your heart. How are you going to get rid of that? By going and rebuking your neighbor. The example of Levi, is that not a powerful example of someone who failed to admonish and rebuke his own sons? One of the other themes we see in the Old Testament is that righteous people love admonishment. This is one of the great tests. If, if you go and admonish somebody in your fellowship and they get all offended and they run away, well, that says a lot if they're a wise or a fool. So a few examples. Proverbs 9.8. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 15.31. The ear that hears rebukes of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. David actually prays for rebuke. He says in Psalm 141.5, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it shall be excellent as oil. Let my head not refuse it. There's a whole bunch in the New Testament. I've got like 20 here. I'll just read a handful of them. This is Paul who describes his ministry in Ephesus. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. 1 Corinthians 4 and 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Romans 5.14. And concerning you, my brother, I myself am convinced, or my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. Colossians 1.28. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing you, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. 2 Thessalonians 3.15, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, oh, there's so many more I could read here. I'll just read, uh, do two more. Uh, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repro- reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's 2 Timothy 4.2. Titus 2.15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, again, I read a, a, a sampling there. If I were to ask you in your group there, how many times have you reached out proactively and admonished someone in the last three months, six months, year, something along those lines? This ought to be the heartbeat of what we're doing, and we ought to be loving it and welcoming it, just like David prays for it and wants it, because we can grow there. Now, I'm going to tell you more about this particular group that I was referencing before that rehabilitates prisoners. So they are convinced that one of the main deficits in humanity is 
Instead of speaking when we see a problem in someone's life, we stay quiet and we bottle it up. This is a universal problem. And so at this particular place, there's a, they have two centers where they do this. They have decided to formalize this process because they realize that people are horrible at admonishing. And because they're horrible at admonishing, the group can't get better. The group can't progress because everyone's just too nice, right? A bunch of nice people. And, hey, nice is great, but it's not going to work for discipleship. All right, so here's what they do. They have this practice. They call it the games. And believe it or not, it happens three times a week. And everyone in your group has to be there. And typically they'll do this in groups of ten. So they have this session called the games. And what you're supposed to do at the games is you are supposed to learn how to give one another admonishments and corrections. And here's the other piece to it. You can give anybody in the whole facility a card asking them, and it's actually a demand, they're required to come to your particular game session, and they will have to hear your concerns at that session. So if you're a prisoner, an ex-prisoner, your first week on the job, you can call the CEO of the organization into your game. You can call anybody in the whole facility there to your games. And I'll just read you from the chairman of the board how he describes this. He says, um, uh, people don't like to confront others, particularly scary and powerful others. Left to their own proclivities, residents would do what anyone else would do. Toggle, switch, from silence, holding our complaints inside, to violence, blowing up in a verbal tirade. So we turn the feedback into a ritual, calls it the games, and lets the games begin. Three times a week without fail. It's very interesting. They consistently say that this particular forum is one of the keys to getting all of these ex-prisoners to a point of, of being able to address their weaknesses and get to a point eventually of stability, simply by using what the group itself can obviously see. Now, I am convinced that we do a poor job at this. We do a very poor job at this. We're polite. We're nice. Oh, it's nice. Uh, but we need to instead learn how to lovingly admonish. As I said, that's a dominant theme of the the New Testament. All right, number four, structure, this is my last point, structure your whole church around relational discipleship. So as I said, we need to think very carefully about who we are, what our brand name is, what, what, what the world thinks about us. And, you know, we, 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 should not, we should not think of, hopefully this is not the case, but we don't want to be known as places where people serve cookies and tea and sit around and chit chat and, oh, it's very polite. And yes, yes. Oh, yes. How are you? And yes, I'm very fine. Thank you very much. You know, like is is church an opportunity to become a nice person or is it an opportunity to become a new creation? As I said, I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that we've lost a tremendous opportunity that when people think I'm an alcoholic or I'm a, I'm a prisoner or I'm struggling with this, their, their reflexive action is not going to be to say, oh, I'm going to go to the church because they're going to be who can help me. But we can change that, Lord willing. Now, one of the things that we have done, and uh, I gave a message a couple years ago at Kingdom Fellowship Weekend on this, on how to use smaller groups of people in this. And I'm more convinced than ever that that is one of the most powerful vehicles, if it's used properly, to help this process of transformation. So I'm going to tell you what we do, and I'll give you just a little bit of a, an idea. You can adapt it and, and do as you like there. I, I think it's um, a template that should be modified. But uh, every five to six weeks, 
we come together as brothers and uh, we ask the question, what mars the image of Christ in me? So that's a question from the Moravians. You may know that from the 1700s. And we sit around and the person first self-reports the answer to that. So they'll say, well, I think what mars the image of Christ in me is I struggle with lust. I, um, I get angry with my children. You know, they'll, they'll list the issues that they feel mar the image of Christ in them. And then at that point, the group will either corroborate that or maybe say there's actually some other things that you missed. And it is a very vulnerable time to do this. So some of the things that have been advanced there are you're very awkward in conversation. You know, that, that's actually something that, believe it or not, is going to be a major hindrance to your ability to evangelize and disciple. If you don't have good social rapport, you're not going to be able to be very effective there. Uh, people have said things like, I struggle, struggle with my weight and self-discipline. Uh, I, my children are out of control. I don't know how to handle them. And so we get this all down, and I keep, most of us have, our, have it written down so we can pray for each other in that. And then what we do is we go off into our, our uh, discipleship groups that we meet every week. And in a setting where it's a small, close setting of three to five people or so, then we tackle those issues one by one, and people make plans to address all of those, those problems. We could spend a lot of time talking about how that's done. I'll leave it at that for now. If there's time later on, we can do that. I think it's very important that our groups are not merely accountability groups. I'm not a big fan of calling them accountability groups because to me that sounds too policeman-like or something. You know, we're just like out there to like catch people. Now, I think that's a very valuable function, and we do that as well. We have four questions that we ask each other every week. Question number one is, have you been zealous in the word, prayer, and fasting? And I really appreciate that question because I can tell you myself, naturally, I don't like to fast. And uh, I like the fact that somebody's going to ask me every single week how my fasting is going. Question number two is, how are you spending quality time with your family? So it's obvious if you're married with children, but even if you're single, how are you doing with relationships with your siblings, with your parents? Question number three is, when is the last time you shared the gospel or your testimony with a non-Christian? Again, I love that question. I want someone to be kicking me every week to make sure that I'm on it because it's very easy to go for long periods of time and not uh, be active in sharing your faith. And the fourth question and final one is, since the last time, have you looked at anything pornographic, immoral, or foolish? By God's grace, we, our church, we have, uh, thankfully, uh, don't have a pornography problem in our group, but a lot of people will say, well, you know what, I looked at something foolish on YouTube, and I wasted 30 minutes on Wednesday night on that. That's an important thing to work through as well, that we ought to be learning how to steward our time and not fall prey to foolish entertainment. So a combination of, yes, accountability, but more importantly, progressing and overcoming our issues and getting better and striving. I'm working with, in my group, some pretty amazing issues. And I have seen, in, in my group in particular, just fantastic progress happen that you would hardly believe as we work through these issues, we pray, we work through scripture, we read books together. It's, it's really incredible, this, the sense of, of group progression there. One of the, the things that I would, I would say is, in order to be a successful church plant, it should feel like there's something dynamic there, that you're on the move, right? What's the point? Like, I, sometimes I, I wonder, you convert somebody and they just come into like some boring, sleepy group and like, what's the point? Like, they're, they're just, they're going to get bored. They're not going to stick around. 
it's not really biblical. It should feel like it's a group on the move, that people are, are progressing, that we're storming the gates of Hades, that we're really just taking ground uh, week by week. For this reason, as I said in the beginning, discipleship is the foundation of church planning. It's what's commanded. If we do this, the church planning is actually the easy part. Uh, it's much harder to get people to overcome and work through all these challenges. The church planning is the natural byproduct of healthy Christians who come together and worship God and celebrate what God is doing in their lives as a result of his action of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So this is tremendous. I want to I want to close by reading to you a story. So I mentioned we have a church plant in Uganda. It's, it's going well. I was just there in December of last year. I go there every year and um, we really uh, just been, been very blessed and touched to see what God is doing there. But uh, the, the, I think three years before that, I was in Kenya as well, and we got to spend some time with the uh, Muslim converts. So there are a number of Muslim converts. We have one in Uganda, but there are some in Kenya as well who have left Islam and who are now faithfully serving the Lord. And we got to go to Ethiopian food with them and, and hear some of their stories. And I'm going to read to you a true story of a convert from Somalia. Somalia, as it turns out, it borders Kenya. So many people who, who are Somalian end up fleeing either into Kenya or into Uganda. And so the slums of Uganda are filled with Somalians. So this particular story, this true story, to me is the picture of what I want to see. As I said, I am not content, and I hope you're not content, to just be a defensive church, right? Yeah, I don't want to be sinning. Praise the Lord that we, we don't get to sin. But if our goal as Christians is merely to not sin, like, wow, that is just, what a boring like, existence that is. Like, hey, I made it today and I didn't sin. But how much more exciting is it to just take ground and be soldiers and like storm the gates of Hades and run this rescue mission that God has ordained us for? So, I care as much about that heart of zeal, that heart of risk, where people are stepping out and they, they truly are risking. You know, one of the things that I'm often struck with when, when you read in, in the Gospels where, you know, I think it's Peter who says this in Mark 10. He says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Doesn't that just warm your heart? Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And I'm convinced that one of the great dangers that especially the plain people face is the disease of just comfort and ease and this multi-generational businesses that are very easy and they will never be able to say we've left everything to follow you. That comfort is just such a chokehold there. So like I said, I'm going to read you a story hopefully to inspire us uh, as we think about what this can look like because evangelism spills out into this life of zeal, ultimately into evangelism. So this is about someone whose name is Musa. And Musa was a Christian. Uh, this is, happens in a, a village near, uh, it's called Kismayo, which is in Somalia. And uh, he was the father of three sons, Omar, Ali, and Salat. And of course, there they don't have buildings, so you have to do everything as house churches. And uh, he was a very faithful Christian, is a faithful Christian. This happened in July of 2009. So Musa would go and he would engage with different villagers, sharing the gospel with them. And there was always a woman there who would, who would come, who would listen very intently to what Musa would share. And she had that look of just curiosity and that spark. 
Um, even though her face was mostly covered, you could obviously tell that she was attentive. And uh, one, of, one of Musa's friends told her, though, that she was married to a high-ranking leader in Al-Shabaab. So Al-Shabaab is one of the leading terrorist organizations in Somalia. And um, Musa said, my, my prayer is that I will have an opportunity to lead her to Christ. Musa told his friend, his friend's name was Ahmed, who warned Musa about her. And um, Ahmed said, Musa, you're my friend, and I honor you for loving God as you do and sharing your faith so freely. But you are playing with fire. You know who her husband is. Yes, I know, Musa replied, and I also know that God's word tells us to preach the gospel to all nations, including ours. I don't see any exceptions. But you could put yourself in danger, said Ahmed. You could put your family in danger. Musa replied, if nobody dares to share Christ with her, then her life is in eternal terms in more danger than us. We are not responsible for outcomes, Ahmed. We are responsible for sharing. Even if it could get you killed? Musa paused. Yes, even if it could get me killed. What about your family? Musa said, Ahmed, God is bigger than my family. I love my wife. I love my children. But we are told in the Bible to love Christ above all. That night, Musa and his wife prayed for that Muslim woman. The next day, when Musa struck up conversations in the marketplace, the woman came near her. Musa nodded a greeting to her and then said, Each day I see you here. Your eyes are inquisitive about this God of whom I speak. Your ears are listening. She nodded. I have a gift for you, he said, glancing left and right. Her eyes widened. She looked down and saw him slip a small, dark book out from a bag. It was a Bible. She also glanced from side to side. Thank you, she said, taking the gift. Thank you so much. A week later, she told Musa that she had found a place in her heart for the Christ of the Bible. I am committing to following him, she declared, not Allah. Musa beamed, not as a reflection of pride in himself, but in honor to God. The next week, however, the woman did not show up. Or the following week, Musa became worried. Finally, the woman came, but this time her head was bowed, her, her eyes were less inquisitive, and the left side of her face was purplish with bruising. Her husband had noticed a change in her and asked why. She told him about her conversion to Christ, and he beat her. A few days later, a group of Muslim men, henchmen of the woman's husband, showed up at Musa's home and began screaming at him for converting the woman. They demand that Musa tell him where an influential Christian leader named Mabwera could be found. Musa had never heard of him. We will give you two days, the militant leader said. Have Mabwera here when we return or else. When the men left, Musa's wife insisted that he leave Somalia. Reluctantly, he traveled to a refugee camp in Kenya. Two days later, while Helima, his wife, was making lunch for herself and the boys, the henchmen arrived at Musa's home. When they discovered he had left, two men grabbed Omar and Ali, that's his boys, tied their feet together and blindfolded them. Somehow, Helima and Salat, the other children, escaped and eventually reconnected with Musa in Kenya. But the two older sons would pay the price for what the killers called the sins of their father, they were beheaded. It says, in, in a world where most people play it safe to avoid suffering, many of our devoted Christians and brothers and sisters suffer atrocities and die sacrificially because they love Christ above all else. So it goes on to just quote this verse, which is a familiar verse, Philippians 1.9. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake. How many of us are ready to pay even a small cost for discipleship? How many of us are ready to do this and break out of a life 
of ease and comfortability. I hope that you, you will. I'll close this in prayer, and then I think we have a little bit of time for Q&A. Father in heaven, I, I pray that you would forgive us for the, the great omission, the, uh, the, the stagnation, the lack of, of zeal, the, the, the checklist Christianity that, that, that is content with negatives and not positives. I pray that we would give our all to, to pour in to transforming lives. Father, I pray that we would be worthy to, to stand on the last day with, with Peter and others who have said that we have left everything to follow you. May we not be snared by, by uh, family bonds, by wealth, by pleasures, by comfort. May we be aliens and strangers. I pray, Father, in my heart that every person in here would be able to give a testimony that indeed they have also been counted worthy to suffer for the name, to sacrifice greatly, to leave a life of comfort for this very brief life that we have that you have given us to disciple all nations. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that by your Holy Spirit you would revive in us a desire for evangelism and discipleship that begins in our home churches as we practice loving relationships in this ministry of admonishment and as we seek to, to call forth others to the maturity and perfection that is found in Jesus alone. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Doesn't say on the schedule. Do we have time for questions? Where's Ernest? The fourth question is since last week or since last time, have you looked at anything pornographic, foolish, or immoral? Those four questions, I think, give a great baseline sense of just overall health. Now, like I said, I don't, I don't think that's enough. I think accountability is a foundation, but there ought to be more where you're, you're progressing and pushing one another. But I love those four questions. They're battle-tested. They've worked very well uh, for us over the last year. Yes? The four questions, you mean? Yeah. So one of the things that this, this whole discipleship program is predicated upon is is a, a, a group of people that trust one another and are willing to be, to be vulnerable and share. If, we, if we're not, if you're not in a place where that can happen, there's a lot of groundwork to be done to first enable that. But that, that's really the foundation. And I, I, uh, I hope that those who don't have that yet will strive to get to that place sooner rather than later. And even if maybe not everyone's there, Often there'll at least be a subset of people who are willing to to start that journey and speak into one another's lives. I, like I said, I, I continue to be amazed at how much we are failing one another. At just we see like we all see problems that other people have. Like we see it. Like I know that we see it. We're not blind to these things, but we just sit there and we don't address it. And this is the job of the saints to be taking others, as it says in Ephesians 4, to that higher level of perfection in Jesus. And God help us on the last day that we have just sat there quietly and allowed people to, to wallow in their problems. Yes, Gary. Yeah, that's a great question. So for those who didn't hear, the question was, how do we get to this point where we can, we can have this, this level of passion to begin with? So... We have to 
I'm pulling up something here that I have as a, a list that I use as a starting point in that. We, we have to remember that zeal is something that is, has to be fought for. You know, it's not our default nature. You know, zeal comes from uh, a similar word as boiling or fervent, you know, like this idea that someone who's just, and just like a pot that's boiling, well, there's an active flame, there's a heat source that gets someone there. One of the things that I, I have a long list of ideas to increase our zeal here. So one of the, the first things is to be engaged in a struggle. So I'm convinced that especially men, but women as well, we are wired to be engaged in struggle, some kind of a struggle or contest or something like that. If we don't have that, then our zeal cools off and we will find that struggle in hunting or sports or something else where there's some element of a, a struggle or a contest there. And the degree to which we can put ourselves in the struggle of evangelism and discipleship, which is the most highest worthy goal of all, I think that in and of itself begins to kindle zeal because now all of a sudden you've got a group of five people there and one person says, my life is a mess, uh, my self-discipline is horrible, I'm overweight, I've got lust problems, how are we going to fix that? Well, all of a sudden you've got to rally together and say, you know what, let's put together a plan, everyone, and we're going to... We're going to figure that out. And I'll tell you, that's a very powerful tool in and of itself. Another idea is, is uh, this is something that helps me a lot, is listening to good preaching. I love to listen to good preaching. And I, I've listened to hundreds of thousands of sermons, I'm sure, by now, where I can use that as a constant way to just fuel myself. Uh, I personally have found a lot of benefit in reading quality biographies and autobiographies where again to, like to read these stories it just it charges me like, even when I read that story I read this story many times about Musa I mean how how can we not listen to that and just be you know stirred in our in our heart uh, surrounding ourselves with zealous people is another tool there so John Wesley who most of us know of course the founder of the Methodist movement in the 1700s one thing that he did when he was a young man he went away to college at Oxford he I read his his biography many years ago, and it struck me because when he was there, he he decided who he would basically have his friends based on their level of zeal. And if they were not at or higher than he was, he did not want to associate with them, basically, because he recognized that zeal had to be guarded. And at one level, you might think like, oh, that sounds so snobbish and so seclusionary and all that. But then you look at his life, and he successfully evangelized more people than probably the rest of the country put together. Uh, so he understood the importance of this zeal. Uh, exposing ourselves regularly to the needs of the world, I find very helpful whenever I go to India, Uganda, places like that, and I see, like, wow, we really do live in such luxury here. I find that very helpful. Uh, fasting, very powerful in that. I'm giving a long list here. Uh, we, in our groups, we emphasize a lot of habits. We we have a big emphasis on daily habits and using uh, particularly a devotional time in a strategic way, Bible memorization. Uh, we, we also do prayer meetings every week that I, I find very helpful. So those are just a handful of ideas, but they're very foundational. And, and maybe even to echo what I said before, where Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. Like, we, we have no plan B here. I think often what we have done is we have set people up for failure in the sense that we have not accurately portrayed the gospel as something that unless we give up everything we have, we can't follow him. And we ourselves are often hedging and living in ways that aren't harmonious with this 
radical, obedient call. When people see radical obedience, it kindles zeal in our own hearts. I mean, again, God wired us in that way. So hopefully that gives some helpful ideas.